Sports Radio 104.3 The Fan. Every Saturday morning, it's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Terry takes you inside the outdoors. You know, hunting, fishing, camping. It's Terry Wickstrom Outdoors. Now, here's Terry. All right, good morning, Colorado. Welcome to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on ESPN Denver 1600. But contrary to that fine introduction right there, I am not Terry Wickstrom. Terry is away and traveling with his lovely bride karen and uh instead i'm chad lachance host of fishful thinker television and i am here to fill in for terry today on this special edition of terry wickstrom outdoors we've got a great show lined up we've got a bunch of folks with fishful thinker that you guys are probably familiar with if you've ever ever been around terry wickstrom outdoors you know we're here a lot and uh we've got dan swanson calling in this morning dan's a guide with us at fishful thinker one of the world's leading experts on sonar and gps he's going to be our first caller here in the first segment Got a couple of folks from Colorado Parks and Wildlife going to talk about the Arkansas River Valley a little bit and a few hunting topics as well. And uh, speaking of that, we'll talk a little bit of casting blast later in the show today. So it's kind of a unique, uh, a unique topic for us, and uh, should be a really fun show. We've got it's going to be full though, so we're going to go to the phones here pretty quick because it's getting to be the time of year where we have a lot of suspended fish in the water column. And if you guys are hardcore anglers, you know what I'm talking about. We got bait fish and walleyes and bass that are suspended in the water column meaning they're not sitting on the bottom they're not on the surface they're not in the shallows and they can be really hard to catch and our first guest mr dan swanson is going to join us now and talk about some of the ways that he locates those fish on his guide trips i believe he was guiding on horse tooth yesterday dan you there this morning i am i am i'm here all right, Dano. So, uh, for folks that aren't familiar, you're one of the experts in the entire country on sonar GPS, particularly with Lawrence units. You beta test units. You're one of the test guys for their stuff before it comes to market. Uh, when it comes to locating fish, sonar GPS, boat setup, and all that, you're the guy. And I know you don't like me to say that, but I'm going to say it anyway. Uh, Dan Swanson is the man when it comes to that. Now, at this time of year, we've got a lot of fish that are high in the water column that are not on the bottom like we were just talking about, and they can be the hardest ones for guys to address as far as, as anglers. And it could be bass, it could be wipers or walleyes, it could be you know a variety of species, but a lot of fish in the middle of the column, and uh, and they're the most difficult ones to address. What a what are some key things, you know, we talk about sonar and GPS and how we catch fish with them, but what are some key things that you think of when it comes to dealing with fish that are not on the bottom, per se? Well, they're really hard to catch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but, locating but them is a small that, part of it. Yeah, but first you've got to find them before you do anything else, and that's where I rely on my electronics. I probably, I probably rely on my electronics more this time of year than pretty much any other time of year because the fish are either suspended or they're offshore on some hump or on the end of a long point. They're not, you can't just run the shoreline and catch fish as like, I mean, you still can, but not like it, not like you generally do throughout the summer. So I really rely on my stuff a lot. Um, but if I know fish are suspended and let's, let's take a, a lake like horse tooth, that's got a bunch of shad, by the way, I found them yesterday, uh, pushed up towards the bank but then they're 15 to 20 feet down. Remember, I, I talked to you the other day, and I said I, all the fish I saw were 40 feet, and those are the shad or the smelt. So I'm looking for I'm looking for bait first of all, and then what I want to do is I want to find fish that are hanging around with that bait. And the best way to do that is is first of all limit the the depth that you're looking at on your sonar. So if if I think the fish are hanging in that 
upper 40 feet of water and I'm over 100 feet of water, I really don't care what's below, say, 50 feet. So what I can do is I'll set I'll set my sonar depth on manual and I'll set the depth to, say, 50 feet if I'm looking at everything from 40 feet and up. Um, the other there's a, another way you can do that and that's to use your zoom you can put it on you can put it on zoom and then the zoom bar on the side you can slide up and put it in the area of interest but it may not give you as much range as you want and that's where setting it on manual depth uh, really helps well and and, and the what, other you go ahead what I was going to say to clarify what I, if i'm if i'm understanding this correctly when you set your when you set your sonar unit to read a max depth of say 50 feet and you're in 100 feet of water it is automatic, it being your sonar unit, regardless of what brand you have, is automatically setting its sensitivity uh, and things like that for that depth range as well. Assuming you have it all running on auto, it's going to, uh, when you set the depth manually, it will set the sensitivity uh, and things like that specifically for that depth to give you your best image from that depth or up in the water column, correct? Yeah, it, it'll do that. But I, I would run mine on manual. I'd run my sensitivity on manual as well. <clears throat> so... I'm going to crank up my sensitivity as high as I can get away with, you know, where, to where my screen's not completely cluttered or completely dark. But I'll I'll turn it up to where the bait fish is going to, in a color unit, I'm going to get maybe gets a little in with Lawrence panels. Yellow being the hardest return, red next hard, and blue least hard. Just get that straight right up front. So when I turn up my sensitivity, I want to start getting some yellow in my bait fish, but not too much because I want to be able to pick out arches within the bait fish. So what you'll start to see is if you have, let's say, a bunch of walleyes swimming around inside the bait fish or, or bass swimming around inside the bait fish, you want to turn up your sensitivity. You'll start to see yellow arches within the red. And that will give you some idea that there are bigger targets, bigger, bigger fish inside of the bait or just above the bait or around the bait. So running your sonar on manual is the best way to be able to find what you want to see. The other thing that I'm going to do is I, I have the ability on all the ranch units and I know other brands as well, where you can split the screen and have 83 kilohertz running in one window and 200 kilohertz running in, in the other 200 kilohertz gives you your best picture, but it covers less water. So the cone is narrower, the cone being the, um, the shape of the of the signal that comes off the transducer at 83 kilohertz, I get a much wider cone, and I can actually pick up things further out away from my boat. So I will run it in both images, just to kind of give me a better idea. Gotcha. And now you have that split screen, so you can see both of them simultaneously, and the images are similar but not exactly the same, and you get the most information. Now, is there a situation when we've got fish up off the mine? Let's, con- let's continue with the fish that are suspended because I know at places like Pueblo and Chatfield and Cherry Creek there are fish up in the column, obviously at Horsetooth as well. Um, do you run your down scan, which is uh, uh, at, at uh, much higher kilohertz, higher frequency, do you run that as well, or are you relying on traditional sonar most of the time? I'm, I may run that as well. Since I can split my screen four ways, I, I'll probably run uh, the, the two frequencies next to each other and, and have the uh, have the down scan there as well to kind of help interpret things because I'm going to see the clouds of uh, the bait fish are going to show up as actually individual fish on the down scan where with the traditional 2D sonar, they show up as more of a cloud. Right so that can actually help you pick out fish as well. Gotcha. Now, is there any scenario where you're going to run side scan when you're not dealing with the bottom? I 
I rarely do. I don't find it to be that useful. Okay. Um, you can, I agree with if, you on that, you, by the way. If you have, well, if if you have something like the, the Lowrance 3D um, side scan, you can run, if you run it in the 3D mode, you can actually see fish suspended off to the side, but not many people are running that. Right, right. Yeah, and I agree with that. So let's move the scenario uh, slightly different because you mentioned two different things here in the beginning of this segment here. Um, we talked about fish up in the water comp, suspended fish. Those are the hardest ones to catch. But much easier fish to catch are fish that are offshore, not running on the regular banks per se, but that are on a hump or a ridge or a long tapering point, as we have a lot of it at Horsey Reservoir where we both guide. Um, there's, you know, those fish now we can address with side scanners, down scanning, sonar. Uh, but let's say we're looking at a hump. Let's say a hump at Horses right now that's, say, 30 feet on top, 50 feet on the sides, and uh, surrounded by deep water. What are you doing with your sonar unit in that scenario to maximize the information you're getting when you look at that hump? You have to be a little – I'll run mine on auto depth. For the most part, at that at that point, um, I, I may not. I, I might use the zoom bar to pick out individual sections. So I may set my zoom limit, and I can run the bar up and down, so I can so I can track the bottom of, of the lake. But I have to. I want to be careful that if I set it on manual and I go a little deep, that I don't miss some fish that are that are below where I set my depth. Gotcha. So gotcha. that's one of the reasons why I might want to run it on auto. Gotcha. Um, and again, I, I'm going to split my screen. Um, I'm going to have 83, I'm going to have 200, I'm going to have my down scan. And in my case, uh, because I have maps, we have good maps of most of our front range lakes these days. I'm going to probably run my map in a fourth window. Yeah. That's, and that will help yeah. me identify where I am on the lake and where that hump is and where am I on the sides and, and whatnot. Right. Very much so. Uh, the same scenario I will run, uh, I will pretty much consistently have the down scan and the traditional sonar running uh, with the map. And then from there, I may, if the boat's moving consistently, then I will have my side scanner as well. I don't generally run my side scans unless I know the boat's going to be moving consistently because I don't get the image I need anyway. Now, if I'm just looking at these humps and I don't know where there's fish yet and I'm running, say, a series of waypoints, you know, humps offshore, maybe I'll run my side scan there because I'll idle over those at, say, three and a half to five miles an hour and give me a real good picture of where I'm at, what anything might be on that hump you know, some individual, you know, flooded brush or whatever that might be on those humps as the case may be uh, and things like that. But if I'm set up on fish and fishing, particularly if I'm fishing even slightly vertically, then my side scanners are really of no use for me. I'm looking at my traditional sonar and my down scan. Would you agree with that? I agree with that 100 percent. In fact, um, if you get the larger HDS units, you can, you can split them six ways. So I may uh, add a fifth panel, which is just my side scan. Uh -huh. But I, I do use the side scan to pick out fish. If I want to cast a fish, let's say I'm casting a jig and I want to rip it across the bottom or a glide bait like a Johnny Darter or something like that, I can see those fish and I can figure out where to cast to them. And that's where I use my side scan. Yeah, exactly. And uh, and, and there is there a scenario here, and, uh, and, and, and we're, we're going to run out of time here in just a couple of minutes, but is there a scenario here where – uh, you would maybe even still utilize an old school buoy where you drop a buoy on uh, on maybe the top of the point to give yourself a visual reference and then fish yourself circles around it or something like that. Or are you still sticking with the old or with the the more modern waypoint scenario? Nope. If you look in my boat, there's lots of buoys in it. 
yeah. <laughs> I drive around, I find fish, and I drop a buoy on them, and then I fish all around them. So, because you know, out in the middle of the lake, even with even with GPS, you just can't get. Um, as accurate as you can with a buoy. With a buoy, yeah, I agree with that. And, and the GPS, and both of us have what's called a point one antenna, which will show you which way the boat is moving as well as which way the boat is is uh, pointing, and that will help you a lot with carrying, keeping your relation to the to the waypoint that you might be sitting on, but still not as good as a buoy per se uh, that gives you a good visual reference. Uh, in that case, I'd like to drop the buoy and let it sit there for fifteen minutes if I can, uh, and then come back and fish it. But um, but the reality of the situation is. A buoy makes a good visual reference for uh, for casting accuracy and all that. So, yep, and I might even mark. I might even use my buoy to mark, like say, both ends of a of a hump, and then work my way in between both of those buoys. Gotcha. So we're going to close out the segment here. We've got, I think, about a minute left. I think, uh, give or take. Um, you've been fishing horse tooth a bunch. Uh, are you seeing suspended fish more? Are you seeing fish on the bottom? What are you seeing more? Um, I'm starting to see fish on the bottom. They're starting to relate to the to the offshore humps um and of course there's always fish suspended with the with the plethora of bait fish in that lake so um it's uh it's it's you know any whatever you like to do is pretty much going to work up there well that sounds good um so you know i think that if folks want to get a guide trip they can go to fishfulthinker.com and get some information about us uh go out on a guide trip with you uh of course you and i do sonar classes as well uh we'll do those starting in spring again but we do have some guide trips for the remainder of the fall here that are you specifically do so if folks want to go out with you um fishfulthinker.com and we'll see if we can get guys in the boat with you you're going to be fishing today dan I am not going to be fishing today. I try to stay away from the, the lake on the weekends, but I, I actually am going up in the mountains today. Ah, there you go. Well, have fun with that, and we'll see you, I guess, bright and early in the morning at the Fullman Open at Horsetooth Reservoir for the weigh-in. That's a little hint of something we'll talk about later on. But, uh, but yeah, we'll, we'll see you uh, tomorrow up at the lake. All right. See you tomorrow. Bye. All right. That's Dan Swanson, guide for fishfulthinker.com. And uh, he's a great guy, very, very, very uh, knowledgeable at Sonar and GPS, and a uh, great guy to spend some time in. And with that, we're going to hit our first break. You're listening to a special edition of Terry Wicks from Outdoors on ESPN Denver 1600. All right, welcome back to the special edition of Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on ESPN Denver 1600. I'm Chad Lachance. I'm guest hosting for Mr. Wickstrom. He's away and traveling. We wish him, of course, safe travels. And regular listeners to Terry Wickstrom Outdoors will know that the 1015 segment is Colorado Parks and Wildlife segment. And this week we are joined by Jeff Banky. Jeff is a district wildlife manager, otherwise known as a game warden, but district wildlife manager in the Hot Sulphur Springs area. And uh, we're heading into hunting season, so it seems appropriate we talk to Jeff. Good morning, Jeff. How are you this morning? Hey, good. Thanks for having me. Uh, you bet. Now, you know, big game seasons are kicking off. Antelope season's already going. Guys are already in the field, and uh, it's a pretty exciting time of year for you guys, I can imagine. Um, you're up in the Hot Sulphur Springs area, correct? That's correct. I primarily cover game management units 18, 28, and a little bit of 181. 181, gotcha. So troublesome gulch and all kind of up in the area around Wolford. Um, now, with the increase in moose numbers in Colorado, and uh, make no mistake, if folks aren't familiar, there are a lot of moose in Colorado these days. Uh, you have seen a relatively disturbing trend, or you and your, your Colorado Parks and Wildlife, in folks not making good identifications with their, uh, with their hunting licenses, let's just say, whether it be accidental, maliciously, or otherwise. Uh, you wanted to talk a little bit about uh, about accidental harvest of moose, and um, first of all, how prevalent is that? 
Uh, it happens happens every year um, here in Middle Park. It actually happens several times. Um, last year alone in Game Management Unit 28 that I patrol, uh, we had three moose that were shot and left um, that nobody claimed or reported. And um, it's it happens, yeah, every year several times during hunting seasons, uh, primarily rifle, but sometimes even archery. I was going to say, I know I did some research prior to this, and I heard of, a, of an archer that did the same thing. Now, as a, as for guys like you and I have spent our life outdoors, uh, it's hard to imagine mistaking an elk for a moose, uh, moose being considerably bigger, taller, darker colored, um, not really even the same body shape. But unfortunately, folks get excited. Yeah, and that's, that's the biggest comment I receive is, you know, how can somebody mistake a moose for an elk? And... You know, we have all different kinds of hunters out there with different levels of hunting experience. And I think also with, with big game hunting and just the chance of harvesting a big game animal comes an adrenaline rush, tunnel vision, and um, people rush their shots without properly identifying their target. Yeah, and there is, in my opinion, no excuse for that. Uh, but it happens, and there's no excuse for lots of things in the world that happen, and yet they happen. So let's say that that I, Joe Average, have made a mistake. I was shooting at what I thought was an elk, and I shot a moose. What is the right next step to take to keep me in the least amount of trouble, if any trouble at all? All right, so the first thing we want you to do is care for that animal. So if you're in a place where you don't have cell phone reception, then go ahead and field dress that animal um, go ahead and skin and quarter it so that meat can cool down and it doesn't go to waste. And then call us immediately. And then we can come out, meet you at the site. You can take us through what happened. And, um, you know, most importantly, we can salvage that meat and get it to uh, a family or organization that can use it. Well, and that's a that's a key thing right there because a moose is a large, delicious animal, and uh, and the wasting the meat is is the worst possible outcome of that scenario. When you find one that somebody shot and left there, nothing good comes of that moose uh, for certain about that. Now, if I do that, let's say I call and I call, okay, Jeff, I, I made a mistake. I shot this thing. I skinned and quartered it, took care of it, um, called you. You're out here. You deduced that it was for sure an accidental deal. Am I going to jail? No, you're you're not going to jail. Um, you'll most likely receive a citation, however, a, a small citation um, that we charge under careless hunting for not properly identifying your target. But no, absolutely no jail time. Um, you know, we understand that mistakes happen, and we want people to, you know, freely take responsibility for their actions, and therefore, we we provide that incentive of not not taking you to jail and not not throwing the book at you perfect now let's say i hide said moose and i sneak out of the woods and i put my gun in my truck and i drive out of there and i never tell anyone about it but somebody spotted it and they call you and then you find out i did it and i left it there then am i going to jail you know in in most situations no you're still not going to jail um however um you know there's lots of violations that then just occurred um Unfortunately, then the meat just went to waste. So you can be charged with waste, um, charged with illegal harvest of a, a moose, um, purposely abandoning a carcass, which that one alone is, is a felony charge. 
And all that combined, you could also be looking at upwards of $20,000 worth of fines. And loss of my hunting privileges as well. So uh, those are those are all a uh, good excuse for, hey, call, suck it up, call, made a mistake, admit it, and go down the road, which is a good life lesson in general. Now, let's say that I'm Joe Average and I either come across this carcass or I witness such a thing. What incentive does Parks and Wildlife give me to call and turn in somebody that made this mistake and left this animal there? Yeah, so, for example, last year with um, the three moose that were shot and left in my district, um, we've already had one conviction. And, um, you know, the case was possible because a hunter and his two young boys came across that carcass. Uh, They knew something didn't look right. They reported it, and based on the information that they provided, we were able to get a conviction. And with that, um, through our Operation Game Thief program, they were able to receive a reward. And in this case was a license for the gender and species involved. So he received a very coveted bull moose tag that he's going to be using this fall. So by doing the right thing, being a concerned citizen hunter and doing the right thing, that gentleman was rewarded by being able to go hunt the very animal that he uh, turned somebody in for harvesting illegally and leaving there. Exactly. That is a fantastic deal, guys. That's that's serious incentive for listeners out there. That is serious incentive. You see, a, you see an illegal harvest of a, of anything, not just a moose, but anything at all. I've seen, uh, as we discussed on the phone ahead of time here, uh, out in eastern Colorado on whitetail only tags, guys harvesting mule deer uh, by mistake. Uh, same thing, leaving them there, not acceptable. So it's a good way to get a tag out of the deal. If nothing else, you're doing the right thing. Um, I hate to see the accidental harvest concept come up, but it's good that it's being brought to the to the spotlight, and hopefully folks will get their act together. Now, quickly, before we run out of time here, real quick, Jeff, uh, how's conditions looking as we head into big game season in your area? Should the, should big game hunters be excited in your area? Yeah, so that's common questions we get this time of year is, you know, how is winter, how the animals fare? Um, we did have really good winter with above-average snowpack. Um, having said that, the animals did well. We didn't get that bad crust layer on top of the snow that, makes it hard for animals to get around. So they did well. Um, we had a late spring, so we were kind of two to three weeks behind. You know, berries are just starting to ripen up for the bears. Um, but all throughout the spring, we've had good precipitation, no fires yet. So we'll keep our fingers crossed and everything is green with lots of forage on the ground for the animals. So it should be a good year. Well, that means big horns, and uh, and that's a good sign for the trophy hunters out there. It also means nice fat cow elk and uh, and does for everybody else. It's all the meat guys. So, Jeff, we appreciate all the efforts you guys do on the ground. I know some of what you uh, what you guys do does not always. Uh, thankful were you know it's somewhat thankless work at times but uh but in my experience you guys have always been fantastic in the field and i appreciate it very much and uh and please doing the things you do to keep colorado where it's at all right well, thank you appreciate that you bet that's jeff bank you guys district wildlife manager at hot sulfur springs and uh, when we get back here we're going to be joined by david doff from arc headwaters river ranger but in the meantime we're going to take a quick break you're listening to terry wickstrom outdoors on espn denver 1600 All right, you're listening to a special edition of Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on ESPN Denver 1600. I'm Chad Lachance filling in for Mr. Wickstrom. He's away and traveling. We wish him, of course, safe travels. Hopefully he's catching fish somewhere, although somehow I kind of doubt it, Kyle, but he might be. Uh, but we're going to go back to the phones because the second part of our Colorado Parks and Wildlife segment, we're joined here by David Doff, who's an Ark Headwaters River Ranger, which sounds like a pretty adventurous job. Uh, David, are you there? 
Hey, Chad, how's it going? Well, it's going fantastic. Now, um, how's it going there in the Arc River Valley? Oh, it's going very good. Uh, you know, the water's finally dropping. The, uh, you know, the water's clearing up and everything. So we're done with high water, and uh, we're seeing more native flows now. Melitoff is done. And uh, so, yeah, the river is kind of slowing down, you know, but uh, splashes are still super fun. Well, I, I got to say right off the bat, uh, you know, I've been doing interviews with Colorado Parks and Wildlife for like 12 years, and I was not familiar with your job description as a river ranger. So for folks out there, what is an ARC Headwaters River Ranger's job? Yeah, sure thing. Um, so the biggest thing we're out there for is public safety. Um, we want to make sure that both private and commercial boaters are being as safe as possible. So, you know, um, not getting in over their heads and uh, having the proper equipment. So with that loose commercial, we require them to have certain things, you know, put as safe as possible trips down the river, like first aid kit, that sort of thing. Um, Yeah, and then most of the day, just if a normal patrol were out on the river, standing below some of the bigger rapids and, you know, setting safety for people. So if someone does swim or boat flips, we're there to help uh, pick up the pieces. Gotcha. Now, I've fortunately never had to use you guys, although I have floated through uh, Browns Canyon in the past. I fish uh, basically from one end to the other of the Ark Headwaters deal as well. And fortunately, I've never needed your services, so uh, don't take that personally, but I'm but I'm glad I never have. Now, I know that's a very popular, uh, maybe some Coloradans aren't familiar, but the Ark Headwaters is one of the most popular rafting sections of river in the entire country, as I understand it. Yeah, you're definitely not wrong. We have two really popular sections. One is the Royal Gorge, which is down by Canyon City, and the other is Browns Canyon uh, National Monument, which is right between Salida and Buena Vista. Um, and that sees some of the most commercial activity um, in terms of rafters uh, in, the United, in the entire United States. Yeah, now having spent a, a fair bit of time there, it's a consistent uh train of rafts all summer long and uh and they go through there on a regular basis uh do you see that does that taper off at this time of year do you still have this river still just as busy uh with the commercial rafters does it taper off significantly as we head into september you know as we kind of head into september yeah families are going back to school back to work kind of thing um but no the weekends are still plenty busy um, especially with the water dropping out was being such a high water year and it being so prolonged. I think a lot of uh, families were putting off their vacation because they saw high water and worried about it. And now that the water's dropped out, I think some families are coming in and taking that rain check uh, on their vacation and uh, coming in. So the weekends, we're still seeing a fair amount of traffic. Gotcha. Now, you guys, um, and I should probably know this, and we didn't talk about this ahead of time, but you have an actual water park as well uh, where part of the river was sculpted. Isn't that, is not that in, in the Ark Headwaters area? Yeah, so there are two uh, whitewater parks. Uh, one's up in Vienna Vista, one's in Salida. And uh, they placed rocks to, strategically in the river to create features that uh, people can go in with, like, kayaks or rafts and uh um, have fun, and then there's like slalom gates and stuff. So they have like competitions there sometimes, uh, where people uh, do time trials and freestyle competitions. So it's very popular, especially uh, as the water's been dropping. 
Huh, now that sounds like a good deal. Now, they just built one of those in Fort Collins. We're in the process of building one of those on the Poudre River in Fort Collins. I know there's a lot of hype surrounding that thing. Um, so be interested to see how that goes once it's uh, once it's all said and done. But it's basically a lifestyle in your neck of the woods. Now, the Ark Headwaters, Arkansas River Headwaters Recreation Association, is a large, significant stretch of body. R- relatively quickly, what or uh, stretch of water, I should say. Relatively quickly, what? How much water does it encompass, and from basically where to where? So the entire Arkansas Headwaters Recreation Area is from Leadville, which is up in Lake County, and then flows through Shafee County, then all the way to Fremont. Uh, where it ends at Pueblo Reservoir. Oh, geez. So that's a lot. That's got to be 100-plus miles of water, 110 miles of water, something like that. Uh, yeah, about 142 miles or so. Um, that's, the, that's the entire park. Um, it's a very unique park in, in the sense that it doesn't have, like, one gate. There are many entrances uh, through three different counties and three different land agencies, BLM, state, and uh, state parks. Well, since you're talking primarily to a fisherman, and I think you're probably joined by Greg Felt as well, who's uh, fishing, uh, I think he's the owner, actually, of Arc Anglers, but also a fishing guy there. Is Greg there? David, do you have Greg as well? Uh, no, I don't I don't think so. I thought he was going to call him. Sorry oh, gotcha. No worries, no worries, no worries. But I know you like to fish, too, so we can be friends. Uh, that section of, of water is, is a very, very productive, you know, I mean, basically, particularly the upper part of it where I've spent most of my time from there to slide is very productive fishing. Uh, I know when the water flows are running really hard, the fish get hard to catch, put anglers in a bad mood. It's not that the fish go anywhere. They just they have a hard time locating baits. But now that the water is come down, it's much clearer. Uh, uh, the days are starting to cool a little bit just just as of the last few days. Uh, how's the fishing? The fishing is absolutely fantastic. I'm a fisherman myself, and, uh, you know, the high water is great for kayaking, great for rafting. It makes it super fun, but, man, it definitely has uh, got me with the fishing blues. But uh, with uh, the high water, with the water dropping down, uh, the fish are rising. They're hungry. They haven't been able to eat regularly, so they're feeding as much as they can to catch up, so. The fishing has been absolutely phenomenal. Now, um, I have not been down there. i got to be candid. I haven't been down there since early in the spring. But i got to think my inner angler tells me that I need a, a hopper pattern, a terrestrial pattern, some sort of a dry fly is going to get me bit on a lot of the days right now. Um, do you have any specific intel on what kind, of, what kind of fly patterns are working right now? You know what? I was out on the water the other day, and what was working for me was a double dry pattern. So I was greeting uh, with a big old simulator, like an orange color, and then just like trailing a little mayfly pattern behind it about 12 inches or so, and uh, they're hitting both of them. Really? Well, that sounds pretty good. Now, uh, I know that section river is famous for some of its dry fly fishing. I know the nymphing always works there like it does in any other freestone stream in Colorado. Uh, you can get away from nymphing pretty much year-round there. But we talked a little bit on the phone ahead of time going into this. Something that's a little bit closer to my normal MO when it comes to fishing is uh, streamer patterns of some sort. And I know when the water comes down and starts getting clear like that, we I personally will downsize my streamers. I'll make them a little bit faster, so I'll, make, I'll use a more hydrodynamic streamer maybe a really old school streamer even it's uh, real thin and sparse and move them real quick um but streamer streamer fishing we talked you said you enjoy it as well are you doing or can we do any good with that right now yeah definitely and i think that would be most productive in either evenings or the mornings um you know yeah double streamer pattern definitely works uh something dark or dark green kind of and uh honestly my favorite thing to trail behind it is just a a small muddler minnow like a classic 
old school pattern that uh, always seems to work for me. Huh, there you go. Well, there's a reason they get to be classic, right? Is because they work, right? Uh, vanilla ice cream might be right. old school, but it never goes out of style. So uh, <laughs> it seems like a good strategy there. Now, I know we've spent some time down there uh, with spinning tackle as well, and, and I'm generally a believer that spinning tackle is an easier way to catch trout on any given day. But I also know when the water gets low and clear, it may not be an easier bet. And so I don't know how much contact you have with guys throwing conventional tackle down there but for me a small marabou jig at this point you know a, a crappie fisherman would have the right idea a small marabou jig is going to be a really good call there are certain sections of your river that are artificial flies and lures only and some that are not uh and in the sections that are not artificial flies and lures only you might get away with with uh with maybe a, a little uh, gulp minnow or a little power minnow or something like that but the safe bet is just take a uh, a little marabou jig, a, a 16th or an 8th ounce marabou jig in a real natural color and and basically swim that through the water column in the deeper holes, shady edges, any kind of seams or runs, uh, and swim that around. The, the lower and clearer the water it gets, the smaller and uh, and quicker I have a tendency to move my baits uh, to make the, the a little bit more of a reaction deal from the fish, and that seems to work for me day in and day out. And really a great answer is to take your fly rod, do the dry fly thing while it's going good, and then when the light drops, get the spinning rod out and go after a after him with the little jig and, and kind of do a one-two punch on him and, and I know that's a fantastic way to catch him down there on a regular basis you don't see a whole lot of guys with spinning tackle down there do you uh you know what actually I feel like I feel like we do see a healthy dose of uh spin fishermen down here and I think they do just fine I think uh that is a, a very good way to fish and you know it's just another way to uh to land yourself a trout and I see I see them pulling out fish all the time so I mean we definitely have spinnerfish traffic down here for sure. Good. That makes me happy to see that. We're a, we're a promoter of all sorts of fishing. I, I like however you like to fish is how I like to fish, and I'm down with that. So it's good to see that you see a mixture down there. I know it's basically a river lifestyle. For people that haven't really spent time down in that valley, it's not that far from Denver. Um, you spend some time in Slider, Buena Vista, either one. Uh, it's a lifestyle. That whole that whole Those whole communities kind of revolve around river life right there, and uh, you've got a pretty neat job. By the way, how long have you been doing that? This is my third season doing the uh, River Ranger gig, and it's been fantastic. And as you said, it's definitely a lifestyle, and uh, I want to be on the river as much as possible. And it was just a fantastic way to, you know, give back to the community and help out the park and, you know, help preserve this river that I love to, you know, go kayaking on. Well, there you go. So if you had, uh, we've got a little bit less than a minute. If you had one little snippet of advice for someone coming down to enjoy the river in less than a minute, what would you tell them? I would say knowledge is power. Go ahead get out and those resources get on the internet google call the arkansas headwaters recreation area if you have questions about the river educate yourself know before you go because uh knowledge is power and uh that can make a trip a lot funner uh if you uh go in knowing in advance well there you go well i, I agree with that 100 percent. there's tons of different access points as well a little, little, little bit of time online would uh would help folks out with that so david i appreciate you taking the time out of your saturday morning to call i know you're probably chomping at the bit to jump in the river so i'll let you get back to folks who want more information they can contact the arkansas uh headwaters recreation area and get more information there correct yep definitely please feel free to call at any time down there we're happy to uh, answer questions and uh yeah, we hope to see everyone down here. All right, there you go. Well, I appreciate it. Well, that's David Duff. He's the Arkansas Headwaters Recreation Area River Ranger, a guy with a seriously cool job. And uh, with that, we're going to step aside and take a break here. You're listening to a special edition of Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on ESPN Denver 1600. <laughs> 
All right, we've got a little Guns N' Roses to get us going. Uh, it seems appropriate for this segment here, Kyle. Uh, you're listening to Special Addiction of Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on ESPN Denver 1600. I'm Chad Lachance filling in for Mr. Wickstrom, who's away traveling. And board up, Kyle's got me with some Guns N' Roses. And that seems appropriate because one of the things I wanted to talk about as we head into fall here is uh, is more, uh, more guns and fishing, let's just say, uh, than Guns N' Roses. But... You know, the the thing as an angler, I'm, I'm the host of Fishful Thinker Television. People think of me as an angler, and I am an angler first and foremost, but there's two kinds of outdoorsmen in the world. There's anglers that like to hunt, and there's hunters that like to fish. And I am for sure a fisherman that likes to hunt. And I heard a saying one time that fish meat is basically a vegetable, which means as a human, I need to consume more meat than just fish. And so what I wanted to talk about a little bit in this segment is take some time to talk about cast and blast opportunities opportunities in Colorado. We are at the time of year where the fishing starts getting really good. As we head into September and October, we have some fantastic fishing opportunities. But the problem is, as outdoorsmen, we also have hunting seasons opening. And so on any given day, I don't know what to load in my tundra. Do I load my shotgun? Do I load my bow or my rifle? Or do I put my fishing tackle in there? And so the obvious answer to me as an outdoorsman is I need to load all of the above in my truck, load some of the big otter box coolers in there and uh and get after them and see what we can fill up the coolers with and bring it home and eat it i am a hunter gatherer make no mistake so a great opportunity this time of year one of the first hunting seasons that typically kicks off is going to be the dove season and doves happen to congregate in a lot of places on the eastern plains of colorado that are also just coming around into really good fall fishing so one of the best combination hunts that i think you can do are combination cast and blast days can be doves paired with maybe some walleye fishing or even better, some white bass fishing. So maybe you go down to southeast Colorado, down around maybe John Martin Reservoir or Two Buttes down in that neck of the woods, and you can do some fantastic dove hunting. A lot of the state parks in that general area and also in northeast Colorado have either state wildlife area attached to them or immediately adjacent to them, or you can hunt in the park itself. But shooting doves and collecting a bunch of white bass while you're there is a really good combination. Great way to load the cooler up and just an excellent combination of of meat, you know, to bring home. Both of those uh, are plentiful uh, species. They're delicious to eat, and they're both come around at the same time of year. So when it, when I'm thinking of dove hunting, generally speaking, I'll go catch my fish in the morning and then dove hunt the afternoon, or I'll dove hunt first thing in the morning get all those birds cleaned up, put them in the cooler, and then go out and catch the fish as the breeze comes up in the afternoon or into the evening. And so just depending on the scenario, but but the, the cast and blast combination of, of doves and white bass and or walleyes is a really, really good combination and a great way to load the cooler up. Uh, another one that, that's good along those lines that will be coming up pretty quick is going to be the teal season, the early teal season. And, again, that's going to take place in some of the same locales uh, that you're going to be able to catch white bass and things like that. Uh, really, really good opportunity. And th- those little ducks are hard to hit, similar to doves. They're small, they're fast, they're hard to hit. They require some practice, but they're also delicious. So if you do uh, if you do have that opportunity, that's a really good combination that I think um, the folks should keep in mind as well for a cast and blast. And it just makes for a really fun day, great memories all the way around uh, to do a cast and blast scenario. So that's one that I really like as well. Now, 
the next season that's going to start opening, and actually they're already opening with the antelope season right now, is the archery seasons. And when we start talking about archery season in Colorado, uh, we, we start thinking about high country deer. We start thinking about elk. Uh, my mind immediately goes off to either brook trout or brown trout. And the reason being is this places that those, that the high, the really high country, excellent, excellent brookie habitat in a lot of cases. And brookies are one of those fish that in almost every scenario, the more of them you eat, the better off the environment is for it. They're small, they're delicious. They reproduce like mad, which makes them an excellent food source. And uh, they're easy to catch. They're generally willing participants to any basically kind of angling you like to do. So if I'm going to go up and I'm going to maybe hunt mule deer at, at, at Timberline, I'm going to look at maybe some of the brookie streams in the meadows headed up there, and I'm going to go to town on those brookies. I'll either carry a little three-piece uh, ultralight pack rod. I carry a little St. Croix trout series pack rod or uh, excuse me, Triumph Series pack rod um, in a little, it's three-piece, ultralight, six, doesn't weigh anything. Uh, beans that they're brook trout, they're extremely willing little suckers. So a little surface popper is a good call, little little tiny spinner, a little Johnson minnow spin, maybe a 16-ounce Johnson minnow spin, a good call. Basically, whatever you like to throw, so long as it's small, um, you're going to catch some brook trout with it. If you're a fly guy, a multi-piece little three-weight or a two-weight, um, real basic little fly select, no problem. I mean, just I mean, as basic as let's say a bunch of number fourteen hares ears and nothing else, and you're going to catch some of those brookies, you know, and, and take a bunch of them home, throw them in a cast iron skillet, eat them in camp, uh, a little bit of butter, some herbs, a little bit of lemon juice. They are absolutely delicious, guys. So while you're out deer hunting, maybe the heat of the day when the deer are all bedded and you don't want to be out moving around, that's a fantastic time to go catch some of the brook trout. So. Uh, that's a really good call. If you're going to be up around maybe North Park area, let's say you're hunting up in North Park or South Park, well, now you're dealing with some brown trout lakes that are significantly step up in terms of the the size of the fish you're dealing with. And when, when you start talking about October, early rifle seasons, or, or the end of you know, the second half of the archery season, you're dealing with brown trout that are starting to think spawn. And those fish are fired up. The males get a big kipe on their jaws. Their colors get beautiful. Um, maybe you're not going to eat so many of those. Maybe eat a couple of them. The Parks and Wildlife stocks a lot of them for a reason. But they are absolutely delicious. They are great fighters. They're a great sport fish all the way around and they generally have a don't play well with others attitude in fall which is one of my favorite things about them big aggressive baits really aggressive fishing is a really excellent way to catch them in that case a a, you know, a big streamer fly big nasty streamer fly or a rat fly or a big oversized dry fly be a really good call a, a, a pointer like a, a jerk bait a hard jerk bait like a pointer of some sort or a lipless crankbait typified by a, a rattle trap or a war pig really good ways to catch them if you're a spin fishing guy um, you know so that that can be a really good deal but the mix and match of the deer or antelope or maybe even elk in North Park and or South Park and some of the brown trouts can be an excellent combination as well and don't forget the rainbows because yeah the browns get all the headlines this time of year because they're spawning and they get really nice colors and really aggressive and all that. But keep in mind that the rainbows that live in the same water are coming in to feed on the eggs from those brown trout. So now you've got rainbows available to you. So if you want to go you know, catch some of those as well, 
The difference being is take your bait sizes down a little bit, be a little bit less aggressive, fish underneath the browns, and lo and behold, you can catch rainbows. We spend time up in in North Park, which, uh, say at North Delaney, which is known as a brown trout lake. Parks and Wildlife uses it as a as a stocking lake to to grow, or brood lake, to grow all of the brown trout they stock around the state. So there's a tremendous number of browns in there, but the the... The rainbows are the unsung heroes of the lake. They actually get considerably bigger than the browns in there, and they do so by eating all those brown trout eggs. So if you take a tube jig or an egg fly and you put it on the bottom under those browns, you're going to catch some of those rainbows. And you want to get your string pulled, hook up to a 10-pound rainbow in a North or South Park Lake, and you're going to know you got one. And uh, and that, that's a really fun deal. But generally, again, that's going to be an egg pattern or something on a fly rod like that. Or in my case with a spinning rod, it's going to be a tube jig uh, that's, again, tight to the bottom. The rainbows are typically going to be oriented more to the bottom, whereas the brown trout will feed much higher in the water column. A a big, giant, uh, a floating plug of some sort, you know, like the old-school floating rapala, you know, something like that can be an excellent choice for those big browns as well. But again, you take advantage of the early light. You go, you go hunt. You try to do your stocks. You maybe try to get your game processed. Or if you tag out early, you know you've got everything's handled and it's in camp. Well, don't don't jump in your truck and run home. Spend some time in the field and do some fishing, and and you can uh, you can really have a great time that way. It's a good way to mix and match. Makes great memories. Put some variety in your photos from your vacation up there. And uh, it's a really good deal. The other thing to throw out is you can camp on a lot of the state wildlife areas. If you're going up there to to uh, to do some hunting, you can camp, like, for instance, in, the, in North Park, right around some of the lakes. You can camp right there at Lake John. And uh, in, in that case, you can fish right from your camp while you're there. So that's a, a you know, a, a neat, just a neat all-around Colorado outdoors day when you do a little hunting and a little fishing in the same day. I think they write country music songs about that, Kyle. But it's, uh, it's a pretty good... Uh, pretty good way to spend some time so my my advice is go at it with an open mind make sure you're legal get your small game tag or whatever you might need or your fishing lights to make sure you're good but a combination of of hunting and fishing in the same day can make for uh make for a fantastic outdoors deal so i recommend you go do a little classic colorado cast blast take it home and cook it on the cast iron so uh, real quick, I'm going to change gears here before we run into the top of the hour. This first hour sure burned up in a hurry, but I would love to visit with some of you guys. And tomorrow morning, starting early, and this is early, guys, I get it. I know this is mostly a Denver-based station, but at Horsetooth Reservoir at 7 a.m. tomorrow morning, the 20th annual Full Moon Open Charity Bass Fishing Tournament is taking place. Starts tonight at 7 p.m., goes till 7 a.m. tomorrow morning. Centennial Bass Club has been putting that event on. This is the 20th anniversary of that, so it's got a lot of history. There'll be 100-plus of the state's best bass anglers fishing for 12 hours uh, all night long in horse tooth. The five biggest bass win, and, uh, and of course, all those fish are released, so don't anybody panic. Those fish are all released. You get a penalty if you kill them, so you've got to be nice to your fish. Um, but they're fishing for thousands of dollars. Our friends at Peterson Toyota put up the big bass prize. I believe it's $10,000 for the biggest bass in this tournament. Uh, if it matches a specific number, uh, prizes will be several thousand dollars for the winner of just for the overall. There's a walleye side pot. But if you're a Colorado angler and you're kind of curious as to what's going on at Horsetooth Reservoir, this is a good opportunity to see all those guys weigh in. I'm the MC of the event. I will drill them on how they caught their fish or where they caught them. I'm not telling you that they'll tell me the truth, but I will drill them in person on how they caught their fish and where they caught their fish. So if you're curious about the lake or you you want to come see what the potential is 
uh, this is a great event, and all the proceeds from the event go to Larimer County Food Bank. Uh, I think they go to, to uh, Lou Gehrig's uh, diseases um, uh, organization as well and a couple others, but it's a, it's a longstanding event. There's 50-plus boats in it. Uh, everybody will be walking around kind of in a daze after being uh, being on the lake for 12 hours all night and uh, and all that. But it's a really good deal, guys. And so if you want to join me there, 7 a.m. tomorrow morning, South Bay Pavilion at Horsetooth Reservoir. And with that, we have killed the first hour of this special edition of Terry Wickstrom Outdoors on ESPN Denver 1600.